Hey, I bet you know. Hello. Oh, thanks, guys. It's so good to be here. And I want to say a really, I know Chris already said it, but I want to say a really special thank you. If you went to the retreat and you're here today, like, Trust me, I get it. I got home Sunday night, and I, Pam and I had some chores and some things that we were still going to do, and I was like, yeah, honey, I'll get to it. I'll, I'll go do it, and I, like, laid on the bed with my clothes on, and then, like, hours later, I woke up, and I was like, cool, what have I done? <laughs> so thank you for bearing with us, but that was a really cool staycation of a retreat, wasn't it? And Peter did such, such a good job of laying out so many practical things. I'm just really, I really think that God's going to do some stuff from that. If you missed it, I'm just going to plug it again because, trust me, it's worth it. If you missed it, listen to the audio. Talk to people who went, and they can hype it up for you a little bit. And it will be two hours of your life that you will always be grateful that you took that time and looked at it. Do that. Please, please do that. Today, we are going through, as I said uh, earlier, we're going through our parable series. And I have the wonderful honor of talking about one that I actually, I'm excited. I do feel like the Lord has something for us in this, the rich man and Lazarus. I ask God to change it. I ask God to change it and let it not be this one two times. And he said, no, three times. <laughs> I, this is what he has for us. I truly do believe that. And so when you're going over any parable, one of the things that you have to know about a parable, there's two peril, perils that you have to avoid. You can't take away a single thing from it because it's something that the Lord has said. So you can't take anything away, and you know how these parables go. Sometimes they don't hold any punches. Like, they just go there in the span of a paragraph on your Bible. You're like, oh, he just said that. Okay. Like, what were the Pharisees thinking? They're over there. I bet they're like really insulted right now. And Jesus, plain face, stood there and just said, you're right. I said it. And I'm talking about you. <laughs> so you can't take anything away. The other thing is you cannot add anything. If it's not there, you can't add it. Two basic rules that seem pretty straightforward, right? But oftentimes for us, we tend to hear these parables. And if you're like me, you want to like be a story in the a character in the story and you want to put yourself there somewhere and and if you're like me also you tend to put yourself like in the best position you're like oh yeah if i was like the rich man lazarus i bet i'm lazarus yeah i'm not that rich man and so i want to invite us before we go into this and dive into it to get some context on this where it's coming from so we know where it's going. But also, I want to invite you to keep an open mind and not put yourself in a role yet. Okay? Hang with me. All right. So the context of this parable, it follows another parable, which I'm not going to go into. Oh, it's so easy for me to pull from it. And I just want to, I could talk about like three or four parables here, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to save you guys. I'm not going to preach for four hours. So you're welcome. The shrewd manager is right before this. The shrewd manager. Okay. Now, this is the one where, when he talks about this, essentially, it will be gone through at a different point, okay? Well, all you got to know at this point right now in time is that Jesus is combining motive and method. Your motive and your method matters. And then he's saying that your heart matters, too. 
So in that one, we see that those who cannot be trusted with little will not be trusted with much. We get this concept, right? Like you have a three-year-old and you're like, hold this glass of water. And then they're like, two hands, come on, two hands. And you give it to them and they hold it. And then they like start running and they're just like, hey, look, a tree. And then like the glass falls and you're like, ah, oh, come on. I'm not going to give you a glass of water again. Like we get that concept. Can't be trusted with little, won't be trusted with much. Trusted with little, you're going to be trusted with much. It's a pretty straightforward concept that we can agree on. So in the verse... Uh, it ends the connection point there, and this is uh, in verse 14 of Luke 16. Don't, you can open it if you want. We're going to go to our verse here in just a moment, but I'm just setting this up for you. It goes to a place where essentially it's describing how you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth, described as mammon at that time. And essentially it's greediness, wealth. You can't have a divisive life right? So he's making that heart connection. You have to live as one whole person. And kind of like what Peter was talking about, mind, body, spirit, right? We get that now, and I think we're getting it. And God's going to do some really cool stuff with this. In verse 14, he actually says, and this was speaking about the Pharisees who were lovers of money. They heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Luke's saying this for a reason for us. He's saying this because at that time, Jesus was describing how you were rich doesn't always mean you're okay. He was describing how if you had health doesn't always mean you're okay eternally. Because in that day, they ascribed wealth as justification or Bear with me. They described your status and what you have, your health, your money, your well-being, as God's favor. And this one I want to say we still tend to do today. We can still do this. We can still say like, oh, man, this guy's just had a really rough life. He broke his leg a year ago. Now he's got COVID. He lost his job. God must be telling him something. Maybe he did something. Maybe there's something that we just, hmm, yeah, Lord, speak to him. Lord, help him. We can still do this. They scoffed at the relationship between material and spiritual wealth. In those days, if you did the things you must, you were good. You were blessed. Verse 15, for you, you are those who justify yourselves before men. This is talking to the Pharisees. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And here he lays it down. Pretty much this is, this is Jesus' like mic drop moment. Where he's like, Poof! Take that. What you have doesn't equal your standing with the Lord. Who you are doesn't equal your standing with God. And if you'll bear, if you'll picture, I didn't make a slide for this, but if you'll picture much on this side and little on this side. And just like Chris was talking about a few weeks ago, people draw their own lines of between who is okay and who's not okay. Jesus is attaching to that. The much, he's attaching spiritual. He's attaching your heart. He's attaching your motive. And over here to the little, he's attaching material. He's attaching the outward. He's attaching the exterior. And as we'll see by the end of tonight, on the much, he's attaching eternity in the weight and light of eternity. And on the little, he's attaching time because our time here is so short. So this is our context. We begin to read. It will be up 
on the screen, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. I'll give you a couple seconds to open your Bibles, open your apps. And we read, verse 19, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish and in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he was comforted. Here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should even rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father, will you be with us this night? Lord, I, I pray, Father, that you open our eyes, that you open our ears, Lord. What I have to say tonight, what I feel that you've given me, Lord, it's heavy on my heart. It's been heavy with me this whole week, Father. It brings me to tears to think about, Lord. Jesus, will you please equip these words? Will you, will you let them enter and go and... and Father, help me to speak in an understandable way. Holy Spirit, will you speak? Will you have your way this night? Because you are worthy. And Jesus, you deserve the reward of your suffering. Will you come? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Here's what we know about this story. The rich man has not a thing against him. In fact... It doesn't say that he was like a horrible person. Anything, he's got more going for him than we think. He had this, by the standard of his day, he had everything he needed. By the standard of his day, he was set. It said that he wore purple and fine linen. What that meant in that day, it was cloth without, without in, in, uh, impurities, without things stuck inside of it. The way they used to do cloth, they didn't have the right material to be able to pull out some of the seeds and some of the things. And a lot of the garments, when they were cheap, they felt more like burlap. So just picture like going to HEB and be like, hey, can I have a potato sack? And then you cut some holes in it and then you put it on and you're just like walking around like that. It's like itchy and you're just scratching and there's probably like bugs in it. That's what your average guy wore back then. The rich man's clothes were probably, well, to be honest, they probably felt like this. Smooth, clean, nice to wear. 
It said that fine linen in that time was worth six times its weight in gold. We know he was rich because one, it calls him a rich man. That's right on the page. But we also know this because the word used for gate is pulon or pulon. And it literally means something made with artistry, exquisitely beautiful. And that was his, like, that was his home. So if that was his gate, you can picture what the home behind it looked like. It said that he lacked nothing, he enjoyed everything, and he could show it. Okay, so I think about this, and I was thinking about this throughout the week, and I was like, how do I convey this? And I was putting it in terms for me. Okay, so he didn't have a flip phone. You see someone with a flip phone, and you're like, hmm, this person's like in the Middle Ages. Like, I knew a guy who had a flip phone even up until he was like past college. We all made fun of him. (laughs) We're like, hey, change your phone. Go with the time. He, like, got really good at T9 texting, though. He was really, really fast. You just see him in the corner. It's like typing messages. He probably, if he was in our day, he'd have an iPhone, you know? If he was in our day, he'd have running plumbing. He'd have toilet paper. Not that single-ply stuff, like that double-ply stuff, you know? With lotion. He could buy a pair of Vans probably, maybe a couple. He probably had some Air Jordans because it says he would, he would kind of flaunt his richness, right? He could do it. If he was us, he had running AC. He could enjoy his favorite shows on Disney+, Plus, Netflix, and Hulu with ESPN. You get the picture though, right? You get what I'm getting at. He's... He's the 1%. And I hate to break your bubble. But America's the 1%. You don't have to be in too many history classes or sociology classes to know that. The majority of the world is doing pretty good if they have clean water. And the majority of the world is doing pretty good if they have a home to lay under. This is off my notes, but I have a friend that I work with that five years ago was living in a slum in Africa. I don't think he'd mind me sharing this story. He loves the Lord. God's brought him out of a really horrible thing and brought him here. He now serves in the Air Force. He just got his citizenship, and he's getting ready to bring over his, his fiance. But he knew poverty. He said that he would go, and it would be a good day if he had like a cup of rice, And it'd be a good day if he had a place to lay his head. His parents kicked him out, and he lived on the streets. And he had to lie about his age just to get jobs. So here you have this, like, 14-year-old, 13-year-old doing the job of, like, a 19- or 20-year-old. We are the 1%. So I ask you to be grateful for that and keep that context as we move on here. Let's talk about the beggar. The beggar was hungry for meals. Meals weren't guaranteed. He lacked basic necessities, okay? So we know that. Back then, gates were places of gathering. Gates were places where you could sit at. Gates were places where you could go forward in your house and just be like, I'm going to sit on the porch. Kind of like we sit on the porch, like your grandparents. I don't know. Did your grandparents ever do that? They ever sit on the porch? Like, I would go over to my grandma's house, and she'd be like, come on, honey, let's go sit on the porch. And I'd be like, why, grandma? It's so boring. And so, like, we're going to watch the cars. And we're... Ah. And I'd go home. like, I don't want to go to grandma's house. But then they got, like, a Sega Genesis, and it was like, Really cool, because my grandpa was like, I want to get you some old games. I'm like, 
Sorry, that's also notes too. Uh, the beggar was really sick too. We know he had sores. Uh, animals lick their wounds to heal them. Did you know that? Dogs lick their wounds because it actually there's some stuff in their saliva that will help it. So he was he had such sores and he was so sick that dogs from the street would come up to him and just be like, "Oh, hey, you're really sick. I gotta lick your sores." And he'd be like, "Cool, go for it," because. I can't do anything about them. There's not much in common between them, is there? Worlds apart, places apart, their lives apart, for all they, even though they're in the same place. The one commonality that we do see, they're both dead. And they both died. We know that the rich man was buried because it says it in the text. Historically, we can assume that Lazarus was not buried. But like kind of Monty Python style, like where they're carrying the cart through the thing and like, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. And then like they put the bodies in the cart and they're just like talking to like having conversations with random people like, oh, hey, Joe, how's it going? Yeah, it's a good day. Only six bodies today, Joe. That was what they did back then. And they would go around and they for the sake of purity so that people don't die from disease, they would pick up the bodies and they would burn them. In that city, there probably was a place like that. So last... Lazarus probably was just picked up off the street one day. Some guy walked up to him and be like, hey, hey, he's finally dead. Look, I think he's not breathing. Is he? Yeah, he's dead. Throw him in the car. Yeah, let's go. That's what they did, and he met a very untimely end, buried probably with a whole bunch of other really stinky dead bodies. We find that both were in Hades. In that time, Jewish context, Hades was simply a place for departed spirits. They're both there, but they're in separate places. The rich was in torment as a result of his neglect, and the beggar in comfort. The word there, actually, that we find when it's saying that he's comforted is actually parakleo, or parakleo. And it literally means called near. And it's like a, a distance thing. It would be like me saying, hey, come over here. Let's chat a bit. That's the context of that word, parakleo, like come near. Let's be friends. Let's talk. We're going to share coffee together. Later on, in John 16, that same word, it changes root form, and it becomes paraclete. That's the word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws near to us. He comes near to us. He abides with us. He wants to be our friend. But this is where Lazarus was brought to, paracleo. And it says the bosom. Think of like holding a baby. What do you do with a baby? You don't hold it away like, like maybe if the diaper's dirty, but... No, you hold it here. Oh, it's so cute. I'll be doing that in six weeks, guys. <laughs> I'm so excited. So I'll be Pericleo. Mijo. One of the most overlooked parts of this is that eternal aspect. Okay? The eternal aspect of this. We have to look at the eternal aspect. Dying is simply a change. You are eternal. And I'm okay with, and I understand that some people in this room may not think that. I'm not naive to that. I know that sometimes the belief is that when you close your eyes, like it's lights out. That's it. So I'm not trying to argue with you on that, but you do know that there's parts of you, mind, body, and spirit, that I believe I'd be willing to have a talk with you if you want to. Talk to me after. 
I think we're eternal. Our bodies, yes, they get old, they wither, and they die. But I think our personality and our consciousness continues on. Conditions beyond result from a life that is lived on earth is what we see in this parable. The rich went into eternity as a pauper. He couldn't bring his fine linen. He couldn't bring his Xbox. He couldn't bring his Switch, right? He got stripped. Everybody goes out of this world the same way they come in. G. Campbell Morgan says that life is never affected by the miraculous if it is not affected by the moral. What does that mean? We find later in the verse here, he's, he's talking to Abraham in the story. And he said, I beg of you, verse 27, I beg of you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may be warned, lest they come also into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. It sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Like when you look at it just face value, it's like, whew. So he's just going to let him rot there and his family. He didn't send anyone to help. I argue, no. He sent the prophets. He sent people to speak and say, there's more than this life. There's more to you than just the external. Later on in the chapter, we see an actual man named Lazarus die. Like be completely, utterly, totally dead rotting in a tomb, and Jesus brought him back to life. Did they believe then? No. That's actually the moment at which they planned, oh, we got to do away with this guy. He's doing too much damage. And that's when they started planning his demise. And then you go on further, you see Jesus crucified and back from the dead. And we have historical accounts so that he was with many, many people. And then he just went to a field one day and was like, bye, guys. It got seen. Did they believe then? No, because of this. Life is never affected by the miraculous if it's not affected by the moral. Peter had a great point on this when he was talking at a retreat, saying that why does, how are you going to change your actions if you don't change your mind? That's repentance. If you don't turn away from the thing that you're running toward, if that thing is killing you, you can never change that unless you physically bring yourself away from that thing. And there are things in this world, how many of us know there's things that physically kill us? The moral matters. We learn here that what you do here matters also and equally why you do it. I kind of butchered that, I'm sorry. We learn that what you do matters, but equally so why you do it and for who you do it for. What you do matters, why you do it, and who you do it for also do as well. So there's no getting away from it. John Cashel, it was him when he came this past, right before Missions Week, he was able to visit us. And it was so random. We got him like just before that. He was like, hey, I'm coming, I can come. And we're like, sweet, thank you, Jesus, come on. And I will never forget it when he said that God's not going to check your passport when you get to heaven. He's going to check your baggage. And I've been thinking about that for months. God's not going to check your passport. He's going to check your baggage. See, I think some of us have this idea in this room that when you come here to this place, you're coming to a meeting and you're like doing a thing that will account and credit to you. 
I'm not calling anyone out. I've done it too. Like, there's Sundays where I, I don't want to wake up. I don't want to get up. There's days where I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to pray. So I'm like, oh, but I should because, well, if I don't do it, like, God will say something about me. And we all think that. That's the temptation. I tell you, it's a lie from the pit of hell. Because God's not going to check your passport. He's going to check your baggage. So what's your baggage? The things you did and did not do. The, the things that you allow to be put on your life. How many of us know that like addiction is a burden? It weighs you down when there's something in your life that is just weighing on you. It feels like you got a thousand pounds on your back. When you know, when friends are even telling you, man, hey, you got to drop that thing. It's killing you. It's killing you and you're dying and I don't want you to die. There's three perspectives here of the eternal that I want us to look at. They're not notes. I want you just to listen. You can write these down if you want to. But Lazarus was humble. The rich man was proud. Can we agree on that? Because how many times did he exit his gate and he saw him? How many times did he leave his door with his Air Jordans and his fine linen? And he saw this poor man being licked by dogs, hungry, alone, afraid. Do you think that he saw the, like, the moment that he was dying? Do you think he walked out? I don't know. I'm not going to add to this story. But we can have some historical context of knowing that when you have a gate, you leave that gate. If you have a man at your gate, he's going to be at your gate. If you're leaving your house, you're going to see him. That's not adding, that's just logic. The rich man failed to receive the ideas that Moses and the prophets gave him. And you know these ideas. We've all been to church, most of us here. Love your neighbor. Treat others as you would want to be treated. If there's someone suffering, you take care of them. They're all throughout the Bible. These themes are there time and time and time again. And I've been teaching up to this point, okay? I, I get it, and thank you for bearing with me. I, I know my voice is monotone. I'm not a good speaker. Thank you. I've been teaching, but this is the part where I, I feel impressed that I don't need to give you knowledge. I guess it'd be called preaching. <laughs> this is the part where I preach. I'm not going to teach anymore. I truly do believe that mental assent alone will never be enough to get you to surrender your rights to this loving, good God, to walk with Him, to be in relationship with Him. You got to meet Him. And He wants to meet you. We can hear all the stories, we can go to all the services. But He wants to meet you. And He's at your gate. And you see him. I know he's spoken to you. He's spoken to me. We've all had those moments. And James 2.19 says, Even the demons believe that there is one God and shudder. We've all grown up with it. 
We've all heard the stories. There's more than this world. There's more than this life. What we are being challenged to consider tonight is considering that there is an eternity and that this is not all we're living for. That in the light of everything from all the way back the beginning of time to now, there's a story that we're not the main focus of. We're just joining it. We've been dropped in along the timeline somewhere. And what you do and what you don't do truly does matter. You can talk someone into the kingdom of God. I tell you, they'll leave. Your mind is never just enough. You've got to meet with your creator. And I do believe that there's good, there's better, and there's best. What do I mean by that? Okay, good, better, best. This weekend was awesome. It changed my life. And I'm not a hype guy. I'm not just trying to make you feel bad. It was amazing. And the people who were there, I do believe that God had something for them. He had something to say, and he spoke, and I hope that he touched your life and showed you that he loved you in a new way. I really do. I know he did for me. I hope he did that for you too. But there's more people who should have been there, I think, because it would have been good for them. And the Lord wanted to do that same thing for you that he wanted to do for them. There's good, there's better, and there's best in the kingdom of God. A lot of people think that like, oh, God has a plan for my life. And I ask you to be careful there. Because the actual meaning of that word in the Bible, plan, we think of plan and we think of like, first I'm going to go to the grocery store and then I'm going to go pick up the dog and then I'm going to go this. Okay, I'm going to go carry out that plan. Yes, but in our mind, for whatever reason, when we think of a creator, we think of him putting guideposts in front of us and we can't kind of like bumper lanes on a bowling ball court. and We can't go outside of that. But how many of us know that we can go outside the lines here in reality in life? We can change things. So think instead of plan, I want you to think purpose. It's actually what the definition of that initial word, the root of that word in the Bible would translate to purpose. God has a purpose for your life. He has a wish for your life. He's got something he's wants you to do. There's good, there's better, and there's best. Going back to this weekend, some of you guys really need to listen to that message. It would be best for you to do so. Some of you guys, I, I think of, I think of, my heart's heavy, I think of, 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 having a child outside of marriage and being left alone doing that. I can't imagine that. Single fathers, single mothers. That's such a serious thing. Now, here's, here's, this will hopefully help us to understand this. Is that baby a curse? No. It's a blessing. Is that what God wanted? For that single parent to go through the trouble that they're going through. To go through the struggle that they'll be going through. No. That wasn't his wish. Can he meet them where they're at? And can he change their life? And can he radically meet that child? And meet that mom and help them? Yes. Good, better, and best. 
God gives us the freedom of choice in so many areas of our life. And it's for you to choose. Many of us will say, if we look back at this story, coming back here, as I get ready to close, that the rich man, he feasted sumptuously. (laughs) Every day he had a feast. And he probably thought he was okay in good standing with the Lord. I bet you he was a good Jewish man. He went to synagogue. He took every holiday. He did his offerings. And I bet you, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, because it says nothing against him, we can assume that he followed all the customs of the day. Some of those customs even included giving those offerings, giving the scraps of your table to the poor. I bet he did some of those things. If we don't take away anything from this, then we can understand that there was nothing against him other than the fact that he neglected his relationship with the Lord. How many of us can say, I became a small group leader. I'm doing the thing. I'm going out. I'm meeting people. They just don't want to talk to me. So I'm going to stop because I'm really tired. And I hate getting rejected all the time. So I'm just not going to do it. Or how many of us can say like, oh, I've done it this way. I've done these things. I've picked up this new hobby so that I can try to meet people. I've, I've had game nights. And they just don't come. I played soccer. They just didn't come. I played volleyball. I went out on the field. I got really good at it. They just didn't want to hear it. And I tell you that Jesus weeps. Because he wants your heart. And he wants theirs too. And aren't they worth trying just a little harder? Not too long ago, Pam and I were just in your seat. I don't, I know better deserve this mic than you do. And I worked. I did Chi Alpha. I worked in a lead small group. And it would be so easy for me to be like, Lord, I did this thing. I'm a missionary now. And he'll say, doesn't mean anything to me. What did you do? Did you have my heart? Did you love? Did you do what I asked? Were you obedient? You see, we can hold to so many things that we have as our thing. And again, it's drawing those lines and it's saying, I'm doing the thing. I'm okay. At least I'm not that. I'm not Lazarus. And I urge you, Please, 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 please open your heart right now. Open your mind and let the Lord speak to you. And ask Him, Lord, how can I get closer to you? And how can I let you be closer to me? What is it you have for me to do? And help me to do it. If there's someone here that doesn't know the Lord, but you want to, I'm not going to sit here and lie and tell you it's going to be easy. It costs you everything. Your wishes, your desires. The Lord might give them back to you. When I went to college, I went to study music. I studied classical guitar and I love it. I don't practice that classical guitar right now. 
I'll have all of eternity to get better at it. This is more important. This matters more right now. So when you repent, repentance is a turning away from. So it's, I'm going this way. No, I'm going to go this way instead. When you repent, you're going to have to repent and turn away from some things. You're going to have to give up some things. You're going to have to stop some things. If you stole, you're going to have to give that stuff back to walk with Jesus. I don't care if it was years ago. You're going to have to go find that person, if you can, and say, I did this thing, and accept the consequences for it. Repentance is a complete turning away from and a going to. It's a 180. And so I invite you not to come to me, but to go to your small group leader. And if you don't have one, I invite you to find one. We will help you. The Lord will meet you. He will meet you. He will meet you. He will meet you where you're at and give you such a peace and such a joy. He'll walk with you every step of the way. You'll never be alone. It's the wildest thing walking with God. You die to yourself. And he gives you true life. If you're Lazarus, if you've been through some really crummy, terrible stuff in your life right now, keep going. Don't waver. Trust the Lord and walk in his way. Your circumstances will not dictate how close you can get to God. Lazarus, as far as we know, did nothing deserving of what he got. He did nothing that caused him to be in that place. It just was. We don't know the backstory. We were never told the backstory. But he was on that gate. And he had those sores. And he got so sick, he died. If that's you, if there's something in your life like cancer or sickness or disease, I won't sugarcoat it. The Lord works. And he can do miracles, yes. But if you've suffered, and if you're suffering, just know that God sees it and keep on trusting Him. Don't stop trusting Him. Remember how I asked you not to put yourself in a role? Well, here I ask it. If for any reason you feel that you're that rich man, and if you've put people on a, a pedestal of a checklist of getting things done or your walk with God on a checklist, if you feel like stale bread, if you feel like it just doesn't feel the same way as it used to, that's not God's fault. It's your own. You were drifted away. I know it because I've done it, just as guilty as you. But I speak from experience. He drifts you back. He drags you back, pulls you back. And he will love you and he'll watch over you. We're going to close here by watching a video.
There's a movie, it's based on a true story, called Schindler's List. And in that story, Oskar Schindler, who was of German descent, he was actually a German Czechoslovakian. He was, uh, he had money. He wasn't greatly rich, but he had money. And so he ended up in Krakow, Germany. And at that point, they were creating the concentration camps, but they weren't fully made yet. So what they did was they moved all of the Jews into a ghetto where they could squish them all together. They took all their belongings, they stripped them of what they owned, and they kept them in a ghetto. And it was at this area where Oskar Schindler came in to the scene, and he bribed and he schemed. He was a womanizer. He was a drunk. Like, he was not a good guy in the very beginning. And he bribed his way into buying this factory. And he bought this factory so he could get rich. But he hired... He hired a Jewish man. His name was Isaac Stern. And Isaac knew what was going on because he had family and friends that were being dragged away. They didn't know where. They just were slowly disappearing. And so Isaac knew that if he could hire Jewish laborers, he could keep them in his factory. They would do the work. He would keep them safe. All Oscar Schindler saw was that he got cheap labor. And so he did that. As time goes by, Oscar started realizing what was happening to these Jews. They were being taken. They were being slaughtered. The stories were coming in slowly of what was happening. And Isaac and Oscar finally started meeting on the same page. And Oscar started caring less about the money and caring more about the souls. And so if he called them essential workers, the Germans wouldn't take them and take them to the camp. He would let them stay. And so that's what they did. They did it for a long time. They called so many Jews essential workers, as many as they could afford, and they gave them labor and things to do. They'd make up work for them to do. If it meant that their family got to safely stay in the town, that's what they did. Until the end of the war when, as we're about to see here, the end of the war when the Russians were coming, and Oskar Schindler was a member of the Nazi party. If he was caught, he would have been killed. And so he had to leave. And Isaac and the others were able to move to another factory. The scene I'm about to show you is, is right at the very end of that, where he has to leave by night or else the Russians would find him. So I invite you just to watch with me as we close here. When the veil of eternity is opened on all of our eyes, we'll see truly what has value and truly what does not. Will you stand? I'm going to take one song here, and we're just going to pray. The altars are open. If you need to move, you can. Father, will you please meet with us this night? As you work, as you move amongst us, as your Holy